lack of accountability is one of the most frustrating things in our world. And the rot it produces is forcing our culture war to become more and more uncivil and increasingly chaotic. Now, this is something which is a big problem because it also quenches revival here in our churches. And in this episode, we're going to be discussing three big problems that are crushing revival in our churches and in America as a whole, and some antidotes to those problems. So thank you for joining us. This is Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and there are two others with me here in the studio. I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow. And I'm Pastor Mike Proctor. So, you know, I went on vacation last week, and 2020 is an interesting year. Mm. You know, you can't tell if you should ever be hopeful. Is it total darkness? What are we doing? How do y'all feel right now? Do y'all feel like there's a lot of hope in the world? What are y'all feeling on that? Hopeful? It's total darkness? Does it feel like we've been in a vacuum, a time warp? <laughs> All the above? Um, yeah, I, I think a lot of people with things opening up more and the weather being nice, there is some hope springing, um, even in fall. Uh, but also, I think, because the news can never be actually hopeful, is beginning to say things like there's another pandemic coming or the second wave is. So I, I think people are hopeful, but still waiting for that other foot to fall. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think uh, with with uh, the craziness going on, it has given us a great opportunity to point to Jesus, and so I'm finding that there is a lot of hope, uh, and sometimes it takes uh, difficult times to come through to see and discover our hope in Christ Jesus. Sure. Pastor Amanda, would you open us up in prayer as we jump into our conversation today? Sure. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we start by giving you thanks for your many blessings, and even in the midst of a chaotic year, um, we know that you are still God, and so we thank you for your presence. So now as we go into this conversation today, that you would bless our hearts and our minds, and may everything that is said and everything that is heard uh, before the uplifting of your kingdom. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be talking about how a gross lack of accountability is crushing America right now. And it's crushing the church, too. And it's crazy. I wrote this program, and this morning, as... We were in the car coming over here. I stopped at a gas station, and there was a lady that worked at the gas station. And I don't know what the context of the conversation was. I have no idea what led up to this, no idea where she fits in the ideas about the world right now. But I heard her saying, you know, I'm so mad. Everybody's all talk. Nobody ever goes to jail. Nobody mm -hmm. ever gets punished. And, you know, the funny thing is, is it really doesn't matter if you know where she comes from because that's the general state of our world right now. It really doesn't matter what sort of institution you're in, where you're at. There's really no realistic accountability. And what do y'all think about that? Isn't that just crazy? That that's one of the three things that I'm going to be talking about today. We just ran into that at the gas station this morning. Yeah, a little, little serendipitous. Um, but also, like you said, if it's a problem about this world, you are going to run into these things. Yeah. And, and it it is frustrating. Again, regardless of where you fall on various political party lines or situations within the world, it does seem somewhere, somehow, something you know about people are getting away um, and again from the very smallest thing to your workplace to nationally or internationally yeah so we've been studying the screw tape letters which are letters from one demon to another demon on how hell might better tempt people and I want to share one excerpt with you today and the screw tape letters they're works by CS Lewis so let's get into this uncle screw tape he writes to his nephew Wormwood about a man who has become a Christian and is attending church and you might think that he becomes a Christian, that might deter hell. Would you kind of think that at the service level? You would hope so. <laughs> you would hope so. But that's not the case, actually. Mm. When hell sees that somebody's become a Christian, they get invigorated and they say, oh, well, this is an opportunity for us to corrupt the Christian and the church and have them think that they're right with God when they're really not. So Uncle Screwtape, he writes to Wormwood. He says, my dear Wormwood, 
the patient he still believes he has run up a very favorable credit balance in the enemy, who is God's ledger, by allowing himself to be converted. And he thinks that he is showing great humility and condescension in going to church with these smug, commonplace neighbors at all. Now you keep him in that state of mind as long as you can, your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Amanda, what are your thoughts on that? I, I, there's a lot of interesting language going on. Uh, one, allowing himself to be converted, the smug, and yet also commonplace neighbors, which is a little bit of a, you would think those were antithetical to yeah. one another. So so there, there's some interesting juxtapositions that already uh, Uncle Screwtape is putting us in to think about. Yeah, and one of the things about this, and we're going to talk about big three problems here in a second, but I want us to keep this line from Screwtape right on the edge of our, our minds. Because what he says is, a lot of times we think we're special. Mm. You know, all these smug people. And some of them are commonplace, you know, whatever they are. And in England, evidently common is an insult, even though that's not <laughs> how English works in America. Um, uh, but he says, you know, a lot of people, they think, oh, I've done God such a favor. I've been so charitable in my life. I've let me be converted like I'm special. And that's an important concept. And that's going to come up in our other conversations. So, Pastor Mike, you have any thoughts on that before we get yeah, into I our think, big three? You know, just because you're saying you're special, but it's also a place to say, well, I'm just OK. Yeah. I'm good. Uh, and, he, and you know, Screwtape, who obviously wants people not to feel a need to, uh, you know, evangelize or to be active as a part of the church, but to kind of just be passive and feel, oh, I'm special and I'm good and to take a, a back seat. Yeah. And, and I've done enough just by allowing myself to be converted. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what's going on. Yeah. OK, so here are the big three things that I see crushing revival and perpetuating chaos in the church. There, we can get those words out. I almost said perpetuity. Um, it's perpetuating chaos into perpetuity. There we go. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to let y'all respond to these. If you agree with it, if you disagree with it, um, we'll see. So the first big problem that I see is that there is no peaceful accountability. And I'm going to come back and explain these here in a second. So there's no peaceful accountability. The second problem I see is the watering down of truth. And the third big problem I see is that we have this newfound belief that corruption is an outlier. Mm. So let me go back and explain each of these three a little bit more precisely, and I'll let you all respond to them. So regarding the fact that there's no peaceful accountability, this is what I saw at the gas station this morning. People are really frustrated. Nobody ever gets told no for bad ideas or bad behavior, um, specifically for those things. And nobody gets fired and nobody goes to jail and nobody even asks the question of what is true. You know, university professors, they can do all sorts of stuff, teach terrible stuff. And as long as they don't, you know, have bad relations with a student, they, they won't be fired. You can have people teaching unchristian things in a Christian university. Nobody tells them no. And that really is, is what we see happening in government, in bureaucracy, at the FBI level. We see all sorts of cases where nobody gets held accountable. People can flip-flop on positions, and everything just gets forgotten like it's not really there. So that's that first category. And I'll just let y'all respond to that. What do y'all think about this? Pastor Mike? Yeah, you know, I just think uh, to come with that when there's a no, there is also a repentance that must occur. And so I think the no has to happen first for repentance to occur, for there to be this uh, turning back to God. And, and you know, I think this also 
leads not only to just bad ideas and bad behavior, but I think, you know, to, to say, no, it's, we've gotten to a place where um, we were training our children by giving them participation awards for things that they already should be doing. And what we have done there is robbed them of the idea of aspiring for greatness, I think. So, you know, I, there's a lot that says, no, you don't get this award sometimes because you didn't earn it. Uh, we have to be able to say no. But again, I, I, you know, just as you said, we've gotten to a place where biblical literacy and experts of theology are at a, at a clash. Uh, I don't think those two go together. We have to say no to things that are, you know, really, I think, uh, outside of biblical literacy. I don't want to... I, know I went in a big circle there, sorry. but And, yeah. and a couple of ideas floating around there, maybe even three, but Yeah. I don't want to just glaze past that because that's one of the aspects of these problems that I see. Biblical literacy and theological expertise are not the same thing. And when I was going to college there at the Nazarene University that's nearby here, one of the professors whose Bible is actually sitting behind you, um, Pastor Mike, if you lean over to the side a little bit, people can see his Bible back there. Yeah. Oh, there it is. Yeah, Brother Dan Sprosses. Uh, one of his big concerns was that biblical literacy was evaporating and it was evaporating particularly in the area of church leadership. Yeah. And I didn't understand that so much at the time, but now I do. And we're going to come back to that when we get to some of our other problems, but I didn't want to just glaze past it now because that's a pretty big issue. Well, I think we're, we're also at a place where we're seeing not, not just in the church, but you know, let's say we've got a political experts who are not constitutional illiterate. So we come to this crazy thing, uh, and then we go to the medical field. you got medical experts who are not, you know, medically trained or, or at least going off medical, um, uh, you know, science. So that it yeah, becomes a true problem. Even within the field of, of medicine, there's two legitimate but wildly different schools of thought, one of which says there's preventative care, like having a good diet, vitamins, exercise is the best way to, to really – have people in good health. And the other idea is let's put people on big medicine. And depression is a good example of this. There's five areas that you can look at with people, their overall health, their social circles. Do you have a constant circadian rhythm? Do you have a sleep cycle? Are you addicted? Do you have meaning in life? And if people have issues in those areas, they'll oftentimes be depressed. And you can medicate that to compensate for depression. Or if you can actually work with them and get improvement in those five areas, you can have them come out of the depression without any medication. But there are two totally different, but both legitimate medical viewpoints. One of them is, and this is not homeopathic, by the way. We're not talking essential oils. We're talking about natural, real processes that our bodies have, like your immune system, vitamins, things like that, which is proactive towards health. And the other is just, well, let's just medicate everything and not do a lot of the deliberate, intentional stuff. Um, so that's a big problem. And there's no accountability in this area yeah. either. Well, we see people that sometimes, depending on their... Uh, area in in uh, whatever realm of experts or whatever it is, it seems like they're untouchable. So if they yeah. break the law, there's no accountability. Yep. And I'm not just talking about in in the uh, you know the the political or whatever, but even inside the church at times yep. we see this. And so there has to be some type of accountability in all areas of life. And I think it even boils down to we got to do that inside the the core unit of the family that we need to hold one another accountable and not just uh, blaze over things because it teaches our children bad um, a bad way to, to live if there's no accountability in life. Sure. 
Pastor Man, I'll let you come in with your thoughts on this. <laughs> yeah, well, I think really what's hurt us is um, when we're talking about this peaceful accountability is I think we've looked in the past and even sometimes in the present and we equate accountability kind of with this harsh judgment, uh, mm-hmm. this almost like law and order to an extreme. And so we are like, okay, that's not working. So let's go to the other extreme. And we go into this, like, we call it mercy, but really it's just permitting bad behavior. And we keep swinging the pendulum from one extreme to the other. And really what we're called to is not this uh, harsh justice that's really not even justice, nor are we called towards this permissible mercy, which really isn't even mercy. Um, But we are called to be, you know, people that that sit at the crossroads of mercy and justice. Right. And and I think we particularly do see this in in accountability because, I mean, we look at our court systems and we see sometimes where they have, you know, the the punishment does not fit the crime. It's either too harsh or not enough. And there's lots of factors that can go into that, uh, depending on how good or how bad the lawyers are, how much um, affluence or influence the person may or may not have. And, and so we look at this, all these things that are surrounding a person when they come to the case, and we find that justice doesn't seem to be as blind as we would wish her to be. And, and so that trickles down, I think, into how we interact with people. So it's not just something that happens, um, you know, in the court system, but it's something that happens in our daily lives. Again, like I said, like in our workplaces, within our family lives, within our friend circles, we see people who you know, do something inappropriate and we're not always sure how to hold that accountable where it doesn't escalate or snowball into something even more severe. Um, And so it is interesting that this problem is so, uh, so permeates uh, our culture and our interactions. And then our response as the people of God to this peaceful accountability, uh, again, that's not picking justice over mercy or mercy over justice. I think we've created a false dichotomy in our language a lot, but really standing in the middle of that. Um, and holding people accountable, but also allowing for grace. And, you know, like we were talking about professors or intellectual, the intellectual elites, there has to be somehow a middle ground between like uh, this dogmatic, really fundamentalism versus, um, you know, everybody can do whatever they want. I mean, that there has to be. And I think we believe that as Wesleyans that there is a middle way. But it seems so difficult, especially in academia, where it's like either the school's like, oh, you can only teach this one thing. And if you barely vary from it, then you're out. And that's wrong. But then the other and then they're like, okay, let's not do that. And then they go to this other extreme where the students feel like there's nothing concrete to hold on to. Yeah. And you see kind of the other end of that spectrum, which is what is most popular really in a lot of the circles I've seen today is people hold incompatible ideas and they never ask what is true. We kind of say, well, that's, you know, the, the conservative way of thinking about things. That's the more progressive way of thinking about things. And the question is never asked, what is true? And this gets into the watering down of truth, which I'll be on for a second. But as far as how we should actually have peaceful accountability, I need to specify what that means. When we have elected officials, when we have leaders, we have institutions in society which are meant to hold people accountable and restrain sin. That's one of the main purposes and arguments we have for an organized government is that it's a restraint against evil. And we, in order to have restraints against evil, you have to recognize that people are naturally sinful. And one of the big problems that we have is that when your institutions which hold things accountable, in other words, somebody who is an elected official, they break the law, they do something fraudulent, they need to go to jail. When you say, no, we don't want people to lose faith in the institution, so we're not going to do that. Or you've got somebody in a university who's not held accountable on principle. One of the things that you do is you force people 
to an unpeaceful accountability. That's where you really get civil war because you put people in a position where they have to do something eventually. Right now I'm doing a Bible study where I'm working on an old Bronco. The Bronco has rot all over it and people have tried to paint over some of it, but the rot's still there. If you mm. don't hold this stuff accountable, the rot gets worse. You incentivize wicked behavior and unbiblical teachings and you incentivize sin. And eventually, and we're finding this in, in America, it comes and knocks on your door. The devil and his demons are never happy in hell. They want you, their desires always for you. And what you eventually find is that when our organized structures don't restrain this evil, and the evil comes and starts knocking on people's doors and they've seen their leaders, no one has held any of this accountable. Eventually people start realizing, I'm gonna to have to take this into my own hands. And that's where things can really, really get ugly because then there are no standards. I've oftentimes compared this to if you take a dog who's timid and you force him into a corner and you beat him enough, eventually that dog will bite back and he can bite back hard. He can break your skin, maybe even break some bones. Um, and if it's a big enough dog, he can maybe even kill you. If things get to that point, it's ugly and there's very little left. And when there's a lack of peaceful accountability and reasonable consequence for bad things and sin and bad ideas, because again, not all of it's sin. Sometimes it's just people who have invested in bad ideas and that can become sinful, but they just hold on to stuff they shouldn't. But what we do find is when there's no peaceful accountability for that, you force everybody in the direction of chaos. Hmm. Now, to Amanda's point, you don't have to go all like King of France. I want the Crusaders money and the Pope won't let me have it. So we're going to have like a bloody schism and everybody burns at the stake. Um, you, you don't want that either, where the King of France is acting like that. Um, if you want to see how the Crusades end with Jacques de Molay. Uh, but you can't have everybody sweep everything under the rug all the time either. Pastor Mike? You know, I think uh, there is these polarizations where there has to be not only what I would think Pastor Amanda is saying is not only the medium ground, but really a healthy balance. Yeah. And it's almost gotten to the chaotic point where the discussion is not happening between the two polars, that it is basically the discussion in within itself and, and there's not a conversation going on to, to bring one another towards that balance and that holy um, or that middle ground of something where, where we see unifying and, and everything coming place. So there has to be a no said to both sides. It also has to be a repentance and a seeking of God's will. And, and uh, so, yeah. And when we say a no said to both sides, we don't mean that you have to balance things out. If something's evil, you don't have to say, well, in order for me to punish this one, I've got to go find something you're doing bad over here. Call balls yeah. and strikes, regardless yes, of where they fall. That's kind of what evil, you're saying. And that's what yeah. I meant. And, you yeah. know, I think I think the, the problem is all of a sudden is depending on where people gravitate to, that, that often they can't see the own evil that is surrounding them and, and perhaps things that, that – uh, you know, are, are right there in their own backyard rather than always easy to see it in someone else's backyard. But we have to be able to hear that no uh, and accept it uh, when it is appropriate, only when it's appropriate, though, because evil is real. All right. So the next problem we have is the watering down of truth. And now this happens everywhere in our society. We have the calm, uh, the conversation often about virtue signaling. Obviously, that waters down truth. But also there are a lot of people 
who their goal is really to have conversations that aren't really conversations, but they like to talk about stuff and be seen talking about stuff rather than doing a lot of things that bear fruit. And of course, this ultimately makes us where we can't feel, we can't see anything. We, we just get so numbed to the world. It's one of the things screw tapes talk about or screw tape talks about. And another thing that we have going on in our world right now is a willful ignorance of the truth. And I think this is best characterized by the idea that we have when it comes to any issue. And I don't remember who I heard say this, but they said, we live in a world of angles rather than a world of angels. And essentially what they mean by that is whenever somebody says something, we're not looking at the question of whether it's true. Is this something which reaches for the heavens? Is this something which is, is you know, good? But instead we ask the question, well, what angle did they come from? Is that from that perspective or this perspective? You know, when people come to theology and they look at Scripture, they might say, is that the historical perspective or the words that we find in a current critical commentary? And nobody asks the question, is it true? Is it true? Should it change the way I think, the way I behave? The question of truth is not there because we have this willful ignorance that says, let's hear all the different voices. And we kind of shift our focus from what is actually true to just this willful ignorance of truth. And again, I'm working on a Bronco, and one of the videos that I put out on that is I had to repair a door handle and I didn't have the, the mechanism inside the door handle. It had a rod that connects one part to another and I had to make one and just feeling around to kind of guess the shape of it. And, you know, you could have 10 different shapes of that and say, well, you know, this is the hook style A and here's the hook style B. We've got them all. Now you go home and you decide, well, if hook style A and B are both trash, then you've gained nothing. Like it's one of these completely useless things. And instead of us coming together and actually reasoning with one another around the common good and pointing up towards heaven and saying these are the the wonderful holy things of God. Instead of us doing that, we kind of live in the world of technical arguments and, you know, this is one perspective, this is another, and there's never any clear vision of what is true. We also live in the age of unfalsifiable ideas where we say, like with the coronavirus, oh, you know, we hypothesized this many would die and this many people died. Um, so what we're doing is good. And you might say, well, are you sure it's good? Because the data doesn't support that. And they say, well, it would have been worse if we didn't do it. And you're like, the data doesn't support that either. There's no way to prove you wrong or even to prove you right. It's just this world of it feels good to me. Therefore, it must be. What do y'all think about this? The watering down of truth, how that really is just damaging and quenching revival. Pastor Mike? Yeah, you know, I think this is, uh, you know, some overlap between the first one that you were talking about where we, there needs to be a, a no uh, and accountability that's held be, upon every one of us. Because sometimes, you know, let's just be honest, we, we have this idea that truth is always beautiful. Um, but sometimes, you know, the truth is I'm a sinner and that's 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 an ugly truth. Uh, and that I need a Savior. I need the grace of God to come into my life. These are all truths, but the whole truth that that I am a sinner that and these things uh, that I've done are are horrific. We have to be able to accept the truth, and yeah. and I think there's an accountability that truth brings to each and every one of us. Yeah. Mm. Pastor Manning, your thoughts on this? You know, I was, uh, had a thought while you were discussing kind of your the idea of of having conversations versus you know, actually doing something about the topic that's being conversed about. And uh, this week I kind of went down a little bit of a rabbit hole uh, reading some old articles of Herald of Holiness, which is now called um, Holiness Today, which is a Nazarene per periodical. And 
uh, I was reading some articles from 77, and uh, I think that was the oldest one I was looking at in 81, and some different things looking for, for some information. But anyways, as I was reading them, I noticed some of the conversations that were happening in these articles are ones that we have now. And I mean, I, I'm really bad at math, but 77 is what, uh, 43 years ago? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it, it to me, it was very disturbing. It was not a fun experience to be yeah. rereading the, these conversations. And, and I wonder if part of the problem, and I'm not going to put the whole, say this is the only problem with those topics, but I think one of the problems is they're fun topics to write about. And it ranged from, from current events or current different uh, uh, kind of, I guess, social conversations and all the way to the, like deep systematic theology questions. Uh, so wide range of topics. But I think it's more fun to write about these topics, get your PhD in these topics, um, explore these topics than it was actually to live them out. And again, there's a lot of reasons why maybe we're still having these conversations. But I wonder if one of them it's because it was more fun to talk about them than actually to live into them. Yeah. Then um, to actually teach them in such a way and to grow in them and disciple in them to where the church would have been different 43 years down the road versus it to really not. Now, our culture has changed. Some things have definitely changed. Uh, we're, without a doubt, there are things that are different in our churches today than there were in the late 70s. But we're still having some of these fundamental questions and conversations again and again and again and again. And it, I think part of that reason is because we're not really interested in living into the truth as much as we are talking about the truth. And I'll put that kind of in air quotes. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things I have, one of the hard truths that I've had to accept as a pastor and navigating the world in which we live is that people are not naturally good. And one of the great falls that we have of our modern culture is that people identify with the brokenness not with the movement out of the brokenness. Mm. And as much as we don't want to admit it, there's a lot of power and there's a lot of money and there's a lot of prominence and authority and credibility to be had when talking about issues as opposed to solving them. Mm. And a sad truth is, is if a lot of the social issues that we talk about, if they went away, a lot of people wouldn't have anything to market because they've made their, like you said, they've got their doctorate in this. My, if that problem goes away, I have nothing to exploit to talk about. And also, it's a lot easier to talk about things than to fix them, especially with the macro scale. You know, you look at the gospel, the way that evangelism is most effective and the way that the gospel spreads is from person to person, individual transformation that spreads like a fire. So this idea that, you know, I can become the next elected official who does something and suddenly everybody's hearts and mind changes, that doesn't really work. But if you want people to like you, you can get up there and talk about all these issues and people... They feel good by proxy seeing you doing that, mm -hmm. and it really it rips apart our world. It causes us not to know what truth really is, and it just it's it's just garbage. It's it's terrible, Pastor Mike. And you know, since this is a conversation, and I'm not disagreeing with you, but I'm gonna give just a little bit of pushback here because you know I do think that that there is legitimacy, even if they do their their thing here in the brokenness. The thing is, we do not need to glorify the brokenness. We're created in the image of God, who is not broken, who is not weak. And yes, there is that moment that we must realize that we are broken and we're weak, but there is a call to transformation to be the image of God and to come out of that. And we glorify God, not wallow in brokenness and Pity, well, pitiful, and that's we're saying the same yeah, thing. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But yeah. I, I still say there is still a relevance for our world and our culture to 
you know, to have the understanding of brokenness, but yeah. we never need to glorify it. We and need to glorify the aspiration yeah. that God has created us to be. And and what I see happening isn't that people are glorifying the brokenness per se, though occasionally you see that. But what we generally do... I've seen it. I've seen it many yeah, times. Yeah, I, I have I, seen that's that That's why too. I call it that. But... What I see happening most often is people who glorify, they glorify the conversation about the brokenness. Mm. And this is something which really gets into the weeds. Like we feel virtuous because we talk about the issue of, say, race. We talk about the issue of how these things interact with our world. We talk about the, you know, whatever it is, insert it in there. And we feel good because we've talked about it. And we've called out the problems there. And we feel good and we feel like we've exercise the virtue you know we've we fulfilled the common good by talking about these things and it's like you just want to hit yourself on the head and say either everybody needs to be fired because we're doing willfully sinful things that have perpetuated this or we need to have a reckoning where we fire some people because they're talking about this stuff that's either more of it, it there's a disconnect between the real world like you you can't stay at the starting line for so long and wonder why you're not at the end finish of the race like eventually you're either moving or you're being fraudulent about the lack of movement. Like there's some just incompatibility. It's just incongruent that's going on there. And it just. Well, right, if well, I hear you correctly, I, I hear you and Amanda, Pastor Amanda saying the same thing where Pastor Amanda said, you know, we just don't have to speak these things and, and, and talk about them, but we got to live them out. Yes. Um, and, and not just discuss them. Yep. <laughs> All right, so the last thing that I've got here is belief that corruption is an outlier, and we're way past the length of this segment, so we got to wrap this one up quickly. Um, this one is essentially, and this is where we get back to that screw tape line, where someone says, yeah, I know the scriptures talk about you know wolves in sheep's clothing. I know we have the story of the Trojan horse, but I know better. Hmm. You know, I've done a great charitable thing by letting God save me. I, I know better. I know what's good and what's not. But when scripture tells you, actually, no. No one is immune from this. You might be the chief priest corrupted. You might be of the royal lineage corrupted. You might be somebody who's poor corrupted. And you know what? You could be in all three of those places and also be totally righteous. Could happen. There's it, Sin is not a respecter of persons. Just like God's holiness and God's saving power is not a respecter of persons. God is willing to save and transform anyone. And what that means is, even if you've Amen. spent your entire life studying theology— you could be corrupted and living in sin. If you could be somebody who is, is born again and you have full conviction to God, you could, be, you could find yourself living a Christian life sanctified and having a very quick turnaround and having a life that's righteous um, in a very short span of time. Um, one of the things that we have going on is that there is this belief that corruption is the outlier. And to quickly point on this, because we've got to move on, we have forgotten in the church that people are not sanctified by anything other than the Holy Spirit. There is a great scene in one of the Father Brown episodes. And if you haven't seen Father Brown, I think the BBC originally made it, um, but really good work on the G.K. Chesterton short stories. Where there's a scene where in the seminaries, um, there's been some murders happen in a seminary. So all these are supposed to be Catholic priests and there's a fraternity and they've had some murders and stuff. And the professor, who's a priest who's over this particular fraternity, has been sweeping it all under the rug. And when he's kind of confronted with the evil and he can't ignore it, he says, ordination sanctifies the soul. It cleanses sin. And, you know, I would thought about that as a, as a younger man, like three or four years ago. And I thought, you know, that kind of makes sense. He's kind of got a point. Now, after I thought about it for a few years, I've been like, actually, no, he's wrong. The Holy Spirit sanctifies people. That's why you have murders in the seminary. Hmm. Your belief that you can just sweep it under the rug and once they get ordained, they're sanctified, no. 
No. People aren't sanctified by being elected to an office. And they're not sanctified by being in government in an office that isn't elected, yeah. by being somebody who's appointed. Yeah, You're not sanctified. Not sanctify you. Yeah, n- position does not sanctify yeah. you in, in anything. Pastor Mike? But, you know, I think we're seeing that more and more today, and I think it goes, it goes back to exactly what we were talking about with the experts. So some people with power and authority, regardless of whatever area that is, is you know, they're, they're sanctified uh, from, you know, from sin. Well, that's not true. Uh, if you're the leader of the household, uh, you know, your children are looking up to you and you don't, what was the question, what was the statement years ago? Uh, do as I say, not as I do. You know, you, you're, you're, what we do teaches those that are watching. And so, uh, you know, this, this happens on all levels and we, we must realize that sin is sin. And the only thing that cleanses us from sin is Christ Jesus. And there is that repentance and there is that know and accountability that we have to respond to. And just wrapping this up real quick before we get into our antidotes, we have forgotten that it takes the Holy Spirit to sanctify. We're all sinners, and corruption is not an outlier. Corruption is the norm across the history of humanity since the fall. In every institution, even the house of God, even the priesthood, corruption is the law of the land. And outside of God, that is what you get. Um, So three antidotes for this, and I'll let y'all respond to these really quickly. Uh, One, telling people no on principle and affirming the love of Christ. So no on principle. Don't come over here and make a technical argument. Well, you know, it's not what you said was wrong, but it was the way that you said it. People have stuff like this. No, get the technical arguments out of here. And like I said, we have lacked peaceful accountability to now for people to be held accountable in our modern day and age. You're going to be undignified. You're going to look more like Jesus turning over the tables, fashioning a whip, saying, get behind me, Satan. You over there are a brood of vipers. It's going to be ugly because the civil and peaceful ways of holding this stuff accountable were not permitted to us. But we're going to have to start telling people no. On Christian principles. On principle. It's going to have to be Nehemiah 13. The belt comes off. No. Um, So that's the first antidote, telling people no on principle. Second antidote, biblical literacy over expertise. Biblical literacy over expertise. And I'm speaking, um, I'm a pastor, I'm speaking in the context of the church, so this applies everywhere. A lot of times, even within theological circles, we prefer that theological expertise, but that is not the same thing as biblical literacy. And the older I get, the more I realize how true that was. I didn't understand that 10 years ago when I were, was graduating from the university. I didn't understand that, but I do now. And the third problem that we have, and it's antidote, um, our world thinks that corruption is outlier. It's not we have to recognize that we are sinners and only the Holy Spirit sanctifies. So there's my third antidote. Recognize that we are sinners and the only thing that sanctifies is the Holy Spirit. I'll let you respond to that, Pastor Amanda. Oh, um, well, I, I think, like you said, uh, the middle one, biblical literacy over expertise, is something probably for us, uh, for every person, maybe to, a little bit easier for us to wrap our hands around because it's something all of us can do. Like some of us feel like maybe we can't say no uh, we can't fix the, the bigger problems in the world. Um, although we can recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior in our own lives, we can't make other people sometimes see that. But I, I think when we talk about biblical literacy, um, what we're discussing really is immersing ourselves in the Word of God and understanding how God speaks to us and how that's supposed to affect our lives. And, and I think then that will flow into these other antidotes that we're discussing. And again, by saying it's this is not the same thing as getting a degree in it or whether it's, you know, a 
a bachelor's or a master's or a PhD, it doesn't really matter. But immersing ourselves in the life of God and really seeing that, again, I think, I don't know if I can expand this so much, but biblical literacy, more than just reading the words in our Bibles, but understanding how the people of God have failed, but also how they have succeeded, uh, calls us to places of like Christian tradition and history and understanding our history more. Um, we do, I think we've discussed this before, we kind of jump from the end of Acts till like now and we forget there's, a, you know, just a little over or just under 2,000 years of history in between there that we need to understand. So I think by saying biblical literacy, we can expand that even more and, you know, looking at the tradition and the experience uh, and the reason of the life of the church throughout the thousands and thousands of years. Sure. Pastor Mike? Um, you, you know, I'd like to... to uh, do a little comparison here when we talk about biblical literacy compared uh, with expertise. I want to look at that in the sense of financial literacy as opposed to financial expertise. And you can see that in Dave Ramsey, who, you know, has often said it's, you know, your dollars and cents with common sense, things you learn from your grandmother. And so he uses things like the envelope system and all of these uh, different things. It doesn't matter how many you know, letters you got behind your name and experts and business, but he says just use common sense that you learned that you know from your great grandmother or whatever about how you handle your money and and uh, uh, you know it's not just something where you read about it and learn it, but it is lived out as Pastor Amanda said. But I think that's a good um, comparison when we talk about biblical literacy over expertise we see that in what uh, in the financial world especially with somebody like uh, Dave Ramsey yep and we're going to be back here in a moment we're going to have a bible study and pastor man is going to lead into that so we'll be back here in a moment So we're going to discuss a question that uh, my papal posed to me. Um, he was watching a TV preacher, and I can't remember the person's name. But anyways, the, that minister had uh, time for questions and answers, and someone from his congregation asked the question, uh, did Jesus ever get sick? And so I thought that would be nice for us to talk and discuss. And, and so the preacher himself that had gotten this question said that he wasn't sure. It's not explicitly in our scripture. Um, however, he would say probably not uh, because Jesus didn't have the sin nature, which I think is a very fascinating answer. Um, so there's a couple different ways that we can kind of answer the question itself, but also respond to this other pastor's response. Do we want to quickly have a up or down? Do we agree with that pastor saying because Jesus didn't have the sin nature, he couldn't get sick? Do we want to take a quick stab? Is yeah. everybody bold enough to do that? I, yeah. Yeah. All right. What what do you think, Amanda? Do you agree with that? I'm going to disagree. Mike? Man, it, you know, first of all, Jesus did not have the sin nature. He had human nature and he had the the God nature. And Wh- which, the human nature can get sick. Yeah. So I, I, it's, a, it's a half go with the guy uh, on which, the part. Th- let me specify. My question is not... Do we disagree with the man that Jesus didn't have the sin nature? I think we're all in agreement. Yeah. Jesus did not have the sin yes, nature. Yes, I agree with yes. that. But I his, agree with his, that part. His, his statement that, yeah, we're, we're discussing, do we agree or disagree that 
yeah. the sin nature would have been the reason or that he did or didn't get sick. Yeah, and yeah. it was it would not be sin that caused Jesus to be sick. Yes. And so my thoughts on this were okay, Jesus was he did not have the sin nature, but was he free of the effects of the sin nature? And I think that's a good way to start this conversation. And I'll, I'll actually pitch this back to Amanda because I know you had a lot of thoughts on this. Well, yeah, I think we have to understand Jesus lived in the world. And although I do agree with Pastor Mike, a really Christian tradition, um, or I guess we agree with Christian tradition in saying that Jesus had the human nature and the God nature, um, I would kind of push back on your statement that you have to then agree um, or whatever you were saying, because, you know, it, it was the God nature that experienced pain as well as the human nature that experienced miracles. Uh, so there, there's one person. And again, I think we often over dichotomize some of these topics like we were talking about earlier with mercy and justice. It's not either or. Jesus wasn't either human or divine. He was Jesus, which had. So there is distinction maybe in our conversation, but there's never separation. And because of that, for Jesus to really truly be Jesus, to truly be fully human and fully God meant he had to experience life. And we understand this. Hebrew says that, you know, we don't have an unsympathetic high priest uh, who, though, was without sin, still experienced the effects of sin. And I am very much paraphrasing that passage. But um, Jesus experienced hardship. He experienced hunger. He experienced pain. And I think it wouldn't be so far fetched for us to then say he could have experienced illness and sickness and disease. Pastor Mike? Well, I, you know, I think obviously we see him receiving wounds. Um, and so I think, you know, with wounds, infections set up and things of that nature. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to agree with Pastor Amanda that, yes, that is the whole understanding that Jesus come to show us that we could live a life um, free of sin to show us what the image of God looks like, uh, whether the image that we are created in in the human form or the God form. But that also means through those hardships, including sickness and the things that, uh, that we endure in this life. You know, when I hear this question, kind of the premise asserted by the TV preacher who answered this is that because Jesus did not have the sin nature, he was free of the effects of the sin nature. Mm. And, you know, you can go back to Genesis. The precursor to the story of Noah is that the what you get, kind of the sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, they've had so much sin that the sons of heaven have kind of come down and mixed in with the the daughters of Eve and they've created this Nephilim and like the contamination of sin has obviously reached the heavens. So obviously God is bothered by sin. But beyond that, looking at Jesus's specific personal life when he was with us here on this earth as human form in between being born of Mary and going to the cross in that time frame, was Jesus completely free of the effects of sin? Meaning, were other people just coming up to him always nice and cute and fuzzy, <laughs> acting like Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall? No. There were people coming up. You know, they didn't like what he preached on Sabbath one day, so we'll stone him outside. There were people who said, okay, well, uh, we chopped off John the Baptist's head, and we're not really sure who this Jesus is. Maybe he's John the Baptist again, you know. There are a lot of people that hated him, wanted him killed. There are people in the Jewish authority. They acted sinfully and evilly against Jesus. Jesus obviously dealt with the consequences of sin. He goes up and deals with people who are sinners and calls them out of that. And when you actually look at the question of our sickness, our immune system and stuff like that, hell did not create our bodies, which means hell did not create our immune systems. That's a design of God. God has created a very, very phenomenal creature 
when he made men and women in his image. Our bodies are capable of phenomenal things. And the immune system in our bodies and our, you know, our adrenaline responses, our hormonal responses to situations, even going into shock, hell did not design those things. The sin nature did not come along and design those things. God's design made those. And when you see Jesus, even his time in the garden before going to the cross, he's obviously distressed. And, you know, there are natural physiological responses we have to that. Our mind does certain things. You know, you get back pain in the middle of your shoulders. You know, there are things which obviously affect the body um, that make people a little bit sick. And even when Jesus is on the cross, the ultimate consequence of sin is death. And Jesus, and this is going to sound really, really bold to say this, but the gospel is bold. Jesus, God was capable of death, even though he did not have the sin nature in him. So I do think Jesus is certainly capable of experiencing sickness um, just based on the fact that Jesus did. He experienced not sin in the sense that he went out and committed sin. And he said, "Okay, well, I want to see what it's like to be human. So I'm going to go over here and, you know, let's go to the pagan temple and go paganism one on one. But he did. (laughs) endure the consequences of sin i mean that's what the cross is but also beyond that people were awful to jesus yeah. they they did awful things in front of him he battled uh, evil yeah well and i think another dangerous thing with the pastor's statement um or at least maybe not his statement but i think some presuppositions with a statement is to equate sickness with sin now we yeah. believe that sickness um and things that harm our lives are consequences of sin out in the world or the brokenness I should say of the world but you like you do not sin and therefore get sick or yeah. because you got sick you must have sinned like yeah. and I think that's a very old um heresy I'm going to just call it that um that has been around in the life of the church for a very long time and, and I think that's one of the things we've got to call out as bad and because, I mean, we even see this today in our secular world when someone gets really sick or a tragedy happens, the almost the immediate response is, well, what did we do or why does God not love us or, or you know, why would, would God do this to us? And, and so we equate bad things with sin and that's not, there's not a direct correlation all the time. Now, listen, if you go speeding down the highway and run into a car or something like that and that causes broken bones that's a consequence to disobeying a law but at the same time there's people who can completely follow all the traffic laws do everything right and they get hit by the car and now they have broken bones so it's not always that nice and neat for us to claim that and and i think again like we're saying really ultimately jesus put on flesh walked amongst us felt everything we did and probably, you know, part of that as a baby, he, you know, he, his bones had to grow. His teeth had to come in. That causes fever. That causes illness. That causes crankiness. Um, we like to sing around Christmas time, silent night. Odds are childbirth is not a silent event. <laughs> so yeah. it was probably not a silent night for Mary and Joseph when Jesus was born. So, yeah. So there are things that are part of our life, whether it's sinful or not, that are still painful. And so I, I think... For a, I don't know. I just think this is also a very interesting question. Um, so I'll, we'll open it also to you guys who are listening. Please put your comments and thoughts uh, in the in this video. What do you think uh, about this discussion? And, and how would you answer? And maybe how has your, your thought process changed to this answer? Yeah, so coming back really quick, and I'm trying to do the hot keys over here. <laughs> I think one of the greatest scriptures we can have on this subject are 
two parallel things we get that are kind of congruent with one another in the Gospel of John, chapter 9, and then again in verse 11, because they both address the issue in connection between sin and illness, and of course, death too. In John chapter 9, verse 2, there's a blind man and the disciples, they come and they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus in verse 3 responds, he says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And what we find in that is Jesus is clearly saying that not all illness is a direct result of someone's personal sin, that this baby did something that was bad or his parents were bad and now for their child is sick. There is a, a, a connection between the brokenness in our world and original sin, but what you see happening here, and that's also reminiscent of what you find in Genesis, where Joseph, he says, you know, what you meant for evil, God has meant for good. God has worked in our world, and not every time that somebody is sick is that immediately a cause of someone's personal sin that's there right in their life. So coming now to chapter 11, and we find that Lazarus is sick, and it's obvious that he is mortally sick with an illness that leads to death. I mean, they wouldn't have come to Jesus in this way if it wasn't very obvious to people. But Jesus, he says one of the most fascinating things in verse 4 of, of uh, John 11. He says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, this is very similar to what was said in John 9. But it also shows us that there's now a disconnect between life, death, and the consequences of sin. Jesus has come to do something, mm -hmm. that his glory will be shown where death itself, which is bad, God still hates death, but it no longer is the final calamity, which it was after the fall. God is coming to work good in that where others were meant to you know, just have death and chaos. Now, that doesn't mean that God likes death, but God wanted to redeem his creation and give people hope in the midst of that, that, that horrible end. Okay, so that was a pretty fun conversation. Any final thoughts, Amanda, on that? No, I, I again, just I, I think it'd be interesting to hear from from our audience. And, and oh, sure. Also, just, um, I don't know, I, I just think for us to ask sometimes those random questions, or we think they might be random questions, but they might help us understand our scripture and our theology a little bit better. Um, so if you have any questions, even if it's not just on this topic, please send it to us and we'll be happy to discuss them. Yes, we will very much. Send them to kingdomofthelogos at outlook.com or email them straight to me at jeffdillonproctor at gmail.com or find me on Facebook, parlor, wherever, at jdillonproctor. Hit me up. Give us those questions. We like them. Okay, so we're going to be back to play buy, sell, or hold. In just a moment, we're going to have fun with some fall decorations. So if you've been wondering, is it tacky? Does it look good? Do we want more? <laughs> Giveth more or take it the way? Um, yes, from our expertise from panel. Our, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So we'll be back here in a moment. Thank you for spending time with us. Have you ever wondered to yourself, do my Halloween decorations look good? Do I only make beautiful things or do I sometimes slip up and make gaudy and ugly things? Or are we in a time of year where the uglier it is, the better? Who knows? <laughs> We're going to have fun playing Unholiness Today's Buy, Sell, or Hold with Fall Decorations. And there's a lot of ways you can interpret this. And Amanda's over there laughing. <laughs> Because yeah. like, we're experts in decorating, but anyways. <laughs> yes, if you want to see how good I am at decorating, actually I decorate nothing, so there's nowhere you can find that out at. Um, you can see how I repair a Bronco, though, so maybe that counts. Maybe. No. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Not so, that you're painting it. 
We're going to do buy, sell, or hold with some fall decorations. Um, these are ones that we have actually seen, um, mostly. Uh, some of these we, we have tried to, to kind of capture in one way or another. So a lot of these are either sent to us or whatever. And buy means you like it, and you can interpret that however you want. Sell <laughs> means you don't. And you know what? Since this is decorations, let's hold. Let's throw out the holds. No holds today. Oh, okay. Only buys or sells. Yeah. All right. All right. Y'all ready? Yes. All right. Number one. You ever go to the grocery store and say, you know, I wanted potatoes, but unless there was a really ugly witch selling me potatoes, I didn't think I could buy any. Yeah. Isn't that an, a thought that we often have in life that I, I can only buy potatoes from an ugly witch? The other day we went to the grocery store and there were these really hideous Halloween direct decorations everywhere. And, and I mean hideous as a compliment in this time of year. Again, <laughs> this gets really confusing. They were ugly, but evidently that's good um, at this time of year, whatever. So these hideous witches, they were in there selling you Mountain Dew and potatoes and we have them here. Buy, sell, or hold the decorations in stores. Does that ever make you feel like you didn't want to buy an item until you saw the witch with it? And then you're <laughs> like, yeah, I want that now. I, I think I would sell this idea because I think that would make me want to buy stuff less. Yeah. Like there's something very off-putting. And especially there's a sign above it that says coffee bar. Like I don't want to buy my coffee from <laughs> that. So I'm going to sell this. <laughs> Pastor Mike? Mm, I think I'm going to buy and I don't know why. If it had, I don't know. I, do, I do, do I have to give a reason? I'm just going to buy. Okay. You're just going to buy. No, you don't have to give a reason in unholiness today. Buy, sell, or hold. This is <laughs> unholiness today. You know what? I'm going to buy this as well. And imagine if these were real, which is, I actually, this is a store down the street for me. I didn't even notice they were there. <laughs> I almost pushed one of these creations of somebody's artistic endeavor out of the way. These hideous, hideous things, you know, if they were alive in real monsters, they would have, you know, lit me up. I didn't even notice it was there. If it was a snake, it would have bit me. And I was trying to get something out of one of these containers they had at the store and didn't even realize there was one of these like dead bodies fixed to the glass there. So, you know, they're really easy to miss. All right. So let's go on to our next one. All right. So here we have skeletons doing some natural things and unnatural things. Here we have a adult skeleton hanging out of a window you know you can kind of make sense people hang out of windows okay. and he's got holding a little skeleton which is proportioned like an adult even though it's small like a child and then you've got another one that's climbing up the brick in a really supernatural way so yeah what do we think about skeletons doing real people things and then doing ghost things it's always a weird combination are they supposed to look like they died in that position or they come back to life yeah that's a, the one hit coming out the window looks like maybe it was like trying to escape but the one that's coming up that corner looks like it's trying to get into the building so there is a terrifying narrative going on right there yeah and here's um, a, another angle of that um so are we buying or selling that amanda gosh i want to sell i don't really i don't like skeletons so i'm gonna just sell <laughs> pastor mike you know I didn't give a reason on the last one, but that store does sell ten pounds of bacon, and 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 um, you know they they're a good store. This is a great bakery, and they got some other decorations there. I'm just gonna have to I'm gonna I'm gonna have to buy. Okay. All right, and you know what? I'll buy it too. <laughs> All right, next we have when people take fall items and they try to put it in kind of some farm-related stuff. They've got a wagon here, and now this obviously was never a really used wagon. but And you have also can see my dog, Baron, the, <laughs> the new 
church dog. He's there in that. What do you think about when people repurpose farm stuff? I think it's nice or how these people have done it. It looks very, very well done and taken care of and it, it's festive. So I'll buy this. Yeah. Yeah. I'll soup. I, that's a big buy. I mean, the other two I had questions I had <laughs> to struggle with to make a buy decision. And and uh, this is a big buy. I think that's just attractive. It's not got any spookiness about it. It's just uh, it's just a great, great uh, decoration. Yes, it is. All right. And I, I'll buy it, too. And not just because my dog's in the picture. All right. I hope everybody is prepared for a shocking, shocking image here. Yeah, I was not. Um, <laughs> so here we have the pumpkin derriere, as we might say, the, the pumpkin made to be one's rear end. Now, this is actually something that's pretty popular. I see this a lot of places out here where people have the, the pumpkin and the blue jeans, and it looks kind of like someone's rear cheeks. Uh, what do we think about this? My sell a hold on that. I'm going to sell that. I feel like such a party pooper. I've sold a lot more than I normally do on these games, but I just, what is our fascination with this kind of sophomoric humor, like middle school humor? Like, surely we were better than this. I, I don't know if that was an intentional joke where you called yourself the, the <laughs> party um, pooper. The party, yeah. <laughs> no, that pun not intended. Um, yeah. well, no, but no, yeah, I'm going to sell that. Pastor yeah. Mike? I'm, I'm going to pass on the plumber's decoration or the whatever you want to call that i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna uh, sell all right and i this, don't think that it that reaches for any type of aspiration whatsoever <laughs> and i could be you know that's opinion i get the i get to choose another pun you do get to choose okay and next up we have a skeleton that's climbing up a light pole and he's got a skeleton dog after him and then a real police dog after him too <laughs> so what do we think about this buy sell a hold Again, I don't like skeletons, but this one's funny, so I'll buy this one, especially with the dog watching it. Yeah, the dog watching it's pretty funny. Mike? I'm going to buy. And I'm going to buy this as well. (laughs) All right, next up, we've got another set of fall decorations, and we're going to do all these together. So people take their wagons, they put scarecrows, pumpkins, and stuff on them. They want to have that aesthetic of something kind of like a wagon. Here we've got Great Smoky Mountain Railroad. What do we think about this? Buy, sell, or hold. Yeah, I like it. And also, I mean, it can double as a, a way to sell those pumpkins. So I feel that's like true. multi-purpose. And I don't know if that's what's going on here, but like you can make it look nice, but also have your products on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to buy it. As, as a nice marketing thing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to big buy. I like antiques. And so the decoration, the antiques brought together, I, it's a big buy for me. All right. Yeah, and I'll buy it too. It's kind of cool. All right. Next up, this one is interesting. This is one of the most amazing orchestras of yard decorations I think I've ever seen because it always fascinates me are the skeletons supposed to look like they're reanimated and live like chill people sitting in their lawn <laughs> furniture you know they're out there just being bros with one another um, here we've got a graveyard in somebody's yard and they have two skeletons in lawn chairs but next to the skeletons in yarn chairs is a third skeleton who's wearing what looks like a judge's robe that's locked up in a cage and and I don't know what to say about like like two of the skeletons are just fine. They're chilling over there. They've got like a soccer ball and another skull on the ground, <laughs> and then they've got another skeleton just in a cage there, um, right next to him. So what do you think about that? Buy, sell, or hold? I, or just buy, sell? Yeah, I don't even know what to do with this picture. It's it's crazy. Yeah, I, I just I I'm gonna sell again. I just I almost was gonna buy it for the two in the lawn chair. But then you pointed out the one in the cage, and so I just I think I'm gonna have to sell. 
I guess they don't like the one in the cage. I don't know what he did, yeah. but he doesn't even get a lawn chair. He's just in the cage for you. Yeah, Pastor Mike? I, that's, I'm going to sell. But, but evil has buy. a lot of, un, you know, it's that great uh, confusion that evil brings, I guess. And so it is. there's an evil sentiment here. And I know I bought the others, but, you know, you can take that one way. Is, one, is he escaping or is he going up? Mm. Either way, I don't know, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell on that one. I'm going to buy because they managed to fit a whole storyline into this. <laughs> Somehow, some way, the canon is loose on this one, but you can piece something together. All right, here we've got a little general store in Rugby, Tennessee, and they've kind of just got some nice fall decorations out there. They've brought some stuff out to give it that fall look, kind of that nice rustic country look. What do we think about this? Buy, sell, or hold? Yeah, I like it. I do wonder where they... Well, I guess that's just corn stalks that's on the beams. And yes. If you're in farm area, I guess that's not too hard to find. No. So that's, it. I mean, nice repurposing and um, recycling. So, yeah, I'll buy. All right. I'll buy. Mr. Mike, you'll buy? And I'll buy, too. Uh, it's pretty cool. All right. Next up, we've got another cemetery with a glowing ghost, ghoul, yeah. spook. I don't know what you call that. And some other witches in there. So this is kind of your your organized, you know, graveyard. This kind of takes us back to the general graveyard question. What do we think about having a graveyard in your yard? Like a real one? A real one or a... A fake one? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I'd, I'd want one in my in my house. I think, I mean, churches have them sometimes, and that can be a, a an interesting ministry of the life of the church. Um but yeah, fake graveyards. Again, I just don't know why we messing with skeletons. I don't know why they creep me out so bad. But I like the little the witches and the eyes and the glow ghost. I like all the lights. So I I'm do. Gonna, I like the lights as well. Yeah, I'm gonna buy this overall. I just wish there weren't skeletons. All right, Pastor Mike. Yeah, um, I'm I'm gonna buy this. I know the person or persons who live there. Yes, yeah, and uh, you know they, they have always, uh, especially the, the the crippler who who lives there. I mean, what a name! He, he <laughs> is he. Is, so this is the, the the Southside Crippler's home, and I will tell you this that that he he has always been fascinated with, um, you know, the dressing up and decorating uh, for this time of year. But I'm gonna I'm gonna buy. Yeah, I'm gonna buy. Okay, I'm gonna buy two, and going on to our next one. Oh my. So this is disturbing. At first, I thought this was a, a monstrous number one. This is supposed to be SpongeBob. Yeah. Let this be known. This is supposed to be SpongeBob SquarePants, the undersea sponge who lives in a pineapple. So this is a disturbing decoration. Um, yeah. I'm just going to let that one speak for itself. I guess it's not really a Halloween decoration, but it's definitely scarier than some of the other stuff we've looked at. What do we think about that? Pastor yeah. Amanda? Well, like if you were to say like using hail uh hay bear uh bell oh my gosh hay bales to make like a figurine i'd be like oh that's a cool idea but the end result which also spongebob is a square how did you make that so terrifyingly unproportional like why is his mouth open like you could have just painted a smile on a square like oh this is gonna haunt me in my dreams i'm gonna have to sell this one spongebob literally has one of the easiest shapes to To replicate because i mean you don't have to get it perfect like just, you can just, just make get a square. square. Yeah, and then paint the top half yellow and then make his little shirt and pants. And that's it. That's all you had to do. Why does he have, like, vampire teeth? Yeah. Oh. Pastor Mike? I got to sell. I got to sell. I mean, I, I didn't sale. recognize that as SpongeBob, but uh, I'm going to sell. Yeah, I'm oh. going to big sell on that, too. All right, so that's all we've got for Buy, Sell, or Hold. We <laughs> thank you for spending time with us today. And... 
We've talked about a lot of stuff. Yes. We've talked about some big issues that are quenching revival and some antidotes for that. And really, we do need revival here in America. We've got to have Amen. people that look beyond what's immediately around us towards the higher ideals, start aspiring, um, loving one another with Christ-like love, and having that beautiful, beautiful, beautiful reach for the heavens. That takes and it transforms where we can, even in the presence of our enemies, have our cup overflow. And yet we endure, we persevere, we have great aspirations. So that's where we're going to end our program. If you'd like to support us, you can do that at patreon.com slash kingdom of the logos. Also check us out on a couple of different places. We're on Rumble now. We are on YouTube. We're on a lot of different places. And thank you for spending time with us. So on that note, we're going to wrap this up. Send us your thoughts, questions, and comments. And God love you and have a blessed day. got a lot of comments. Oh, good. Sounds very interesting. Amen. We cannot band-aid this. Mm. What that was about. Um, great program. So that's just some... Yep. Well, the band-aid movie, though. Probably the first comment.